are looking at chapter 33, the Freudian revolution, and it is between the years 1900 to 1950. Notice on page 378, if you're following with me, the volume two, the humanistic tradition, the seventh edition, the early modern world to the present by Gloria E. Fierro, who is the editor. It has a particular picture, the oil on canvas, which was uh, published in 1924. It's called The Harlequin's Carnival, and it's by Joan Miro. There's also this excerpt called, or excuse me, the excerpt from Paul Glee that's quoted, only children, madmen and savages, truly understand the in-between world of spiritual truth, end quote. And so in the beginning of our chapter, or the overview of this chapter, we're talking primarily about the beginnings of Sigmund Freud and what he represented in the world of psychology, as well as the different artists of the time who um, had a different perspective of, um, of the mind about the stream of consciousness. So Sigmund Freud lived between the years 1856 to 1939. He did graduate in medicine from the University of Vienna in 1880. One of the things that he was known for, him being a founder of psychoanalysis, which is a therapeutic method by which repressed desires are brought to the conscious level to reveal the sources of emotional disturbance. If you notice on the second slide, if you're following me with the PowerPoint, we're talking specifically about Freud and um, two of his followers, Adler and Jung. So your book describes uh, or references um, the research of Freud and he did a publication in 1900 called The Interpretation of Dreams in which he defended the significance of dreams and deciphering the unconscious life of the individual. Also in 1913, he examined the function of the unconscious in the evolution of the earliest forms of religion and morality in his work called Totem and Taboo. One of the things I want to point out is your book gives a brief overview of how um, Freud related to this idea of instinctual drives and um, human behavior, um, specifically by the sex drive or the libido. And there's this unconscious state that a person has from a child um, childhood age through adulthood, you have these different things that go on in the mind. You have this association he mentions, or the textbook mentions about um, one of the Greek works called Oedipus, in Oedipus um, the King. Um, if you have not looked at that particular piece, I suggest that you read Oedipus the King. There may be something regarding that in the upcoming test as well as the um, information regarding Freud, there is this idea called the triparty psyche. The triparty psyche has um, three particular models or three particular parts, the id, the ego, and the superego. According to fraud, the id, the id, is the seat of human instincts and the source of all physical desires, including nourishment and sexual satisfaction. You have um, 
the ego, which of course, I think you can self-explanatory, you can understand that of how you feel or the manager of, of different things. And then you have, of course, the superego. The superego monitors human behavior according to principles inculcated by parents, teachers, and other authority figures. As we look to some of the pieces that um, your work, your textbook discusses, there is briefly the um, idea of a work from Freud's incisive analysis of the psychic life of human beings. It is reading 33.1 from Freud's civilization and its discontents. As I look at line 90 or line 89 on page 380, it states, we owe to them not only a direct yield of pleasure, but a fervently desired degree of independence from the external world. We know after all that by drowning our sorrows, we can escape at any time from the pressure of reality and find refuge in a world of our own that affords us better conditions for our sensibility. It is well known that precisely this property of intoxicants make them dangerous and harmful. In some circumstances, they are responsible for the futile loss of large amounts of energy that might have been used to improve the lot of mankind. And it continues on in your particular textbook. It goes on through the next page, next two pages through page 382. Again, Freud's followers, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it is still PowerPoint uh, two. You have um, Alfred Adler, who lived between 1870 and 1937. He pioneered the field of individual psychology and he worked to explain the ego's efforts to adapt to his environment. There is this term that's coined inferiority complex or inferiority complex that Adler concentrated on analyzing problems related to the ego's failure to achieve its operational goals in everyday life. You also have this thought from the physician who was um, from Sweden by the name of Carl Gustav Junk, who lived between 1875 and 1961. He believed that Freud's view was too narrow and overly deterministic. So Dr. Jung argued that the personal unconscious life of the individual rested on a deeper and more universal layer of the human psyche, which he called the collective unconsciousness. And if we move on, you have on the next slide, just briefly, we have this new psychology and literature that is related on page 383. You have the um, artists of Proust, Kafka, Joyce, and their other poets listed. The new psychology and literature, this impact was particularly uh, one of the ideas that fraud that was used by fraud, um, the uh, revolution, the Freudian revolution affected all aspects of artistic expression, not the least of which was literature. So again, some of the most famous artists of the time or writers, if you will, were Franz Kafka and James Joyce and Marcel Proust. One of the first 
writers that's mentioned in your book on page 383 is Marcel Proust. He um, had a very negative view about life. And uh, your book talks about um, his sexual orientation and his illnesses that he had to deal with in addition to the death of his mother. You have um, one of the pieces of work based on how he felt about himself. You have, it's, it's um, shown through the work called Swan's Way, which is a reading 33.2 on page 383, and it goes over to page 384. An, ex an excerpt of this is on line 34, which I'll read. I drink a second mouthful, which I find nothing more than in the first, a third, which gives me rather less than the second. It is time to stop. The potion is losing its magic. It is plain that the object of my quest, the truth, lies not in the cup, but in myself. The tea is called up in me, but not, but does not itself understand. It can only repeat indefinitely with a gradual loss of strength. The same testimony, which I too cannot interpret, though I hope at least to be able to call upon the tea for it again and to find it there presently, intact and at my disposal of my final enlightenment. I put down my cup and examine my own mind. Is it for it to discover the truth? Excuse me. It is for it is for it to discover the truth. But how? What an abyss of uncertainty whenever the mind feels that some part of it has strayed beyond its own borders. And I'll stop at that point regarding this particular reading. But there is another um, writer on the scene by the name of Franz Kafka. He is a German Jewish novelist and um, he thought about um, how the reality of dreams, um, sometimes they were nameless, but they dealt with, um, they lacked logical consistency. He was a um, interesting person in the, in, the, in the effect, but he drew upon some of his, some of the ideas of Faust and just how he was lost in his, in his own insecurity. Um, one of his famous pieces was called The Metamorphosis. And just a brief overview of this, this is one of my favorite pieces because uh, it goes from page 385 to 386. Um, you have, um, it's a very, very, very strange way of how a character started off. He's given a narrative and then overall, there is um, this strange occurrence that happens to him. And he basically, he becomes something that he doesn't realize he, you know, that he didn't like for a long, long time. So you think about this as far as how people can perceive themselves and how they can go inside of themselves and become something that they were hoping not to be. I mentioned briefly earlier about Franz Kafka and the Metamorphosis and how um, him being one of my favorite writers because he went more internally within himself. And um, the character of this particular piece, he he starts off in his thoughts and, and he just has this crazy imagination in his thought process, but because he is overwhelmed with the everyday life, um, 
in his thought, he becomes something. So if you see that, which may be another um, extra credit um, idea on the test, then you know that something happens to this character and what does he become as you're looking at your reading on page 385 to 386. Moving on, we have James Joyce, which was um, one of the most influential writers of the early 20th century. He was from uh, Irish background and um, he was a novelist and some of his, um, I guess some of his um, influence was dealing with Greek, um, the Greek role, as well as that influence, of course, of fraud psychotherapy. So you have this inside or this this type that um, called the interior monologues, which is a literary device consisting of the private musings of a character in the form of a stream of consciousness, a succession of images and ideas connected by free association rather than by logical argument or narrative sequence. So there is this piece, um, well, in this particular book, it doesn't show it for, for James Joyce, but um, again, um, one of the pieces, um, he had a work called Finnegan's Wade, which was published in 1939. And um, there was this other writer that was on the scene, which your book doesn't, or excuse me, your PowerPoint doesn't mention, which is Gertrude Stein, who lived between 1874 and 1946, as well as um, Thomas Mann and William Faulkner. And they were the ones, some of the early pioneers of the stream of consciousness technique. I'd just like to point out before I go on to the new freedom in poetry that there is the um, influence in theater called method acting. And it was basically a style of modern theatrical performance that tried to harness true emotion and effective memory, basically from childhood experience to interpret these dramatic roles. And one of the pioneers, early pioneers of this was the Russian director and actor, Konstantin Stanislavski. So if we move on to the new freedom in poetry that your the last part of your third slide entails, you have um, one of the French writers by the name of Goulam Apollinaire, who lived between 1880 and 1918. He was a close friend of Picasso, an admirer of Cubism. He wrote poems that not only liberated words from their traditional placement in the sentence, but also freed sentences from their traditional arrangement on the page. Basically, Mr. Apollinaire was inspired by the designs of ordinary handbills and billboards and signs. And from this inspiration, he has what's called concrete poems, which are shapes of external objects, such as watches, neckties, and, and pigeons. There is an example of another person by the name of um, A.E. Cummings, who was an American poet. And um, Mr. Cummings also, um, he went against the traditional way of putting words on the page. And so there's this example on the bottom of page 387 towards the top on the right hand side. And it states, or part of the, the reading says, she being brand, new, 
and you. No, consequently, a little stiff, I was careful of her and having thoroughly all the universal joint, tested my gas, felt of the, her radiator, make sure her springs were oh. Of course, you have to think about how things looked and how they were perceived by these different artists. Just give me something different for that, that period in time. Within the next slide, slide four of this particular chapter, chapter 33, the Freudian revolution, you have what's called the new psychology and the visual arts. There is this idea of how daily life and expression, advertisements, television can be used in different ways. And you have this, one of the um, ideas of expressionism as well as metaphysical art and fantasy that your PowerPoint mentions. Expressionism, or one of the pioneers, was the Norwegian Edvard Munch. And Munch was a great admirer of Henrik Ibsen, whose plays examined the inner conflicts and repressed desires of the characters. So you have an example of his work called The Scream, which is figure 33.2. The Scream, the, the particular piece here, is a painting that has become a universal symbol of the modern condition. It takes this mood of urgency and alarm from the combined effects of sinus clouds, writhing blue-black waters, and a dramatically receding pier. And this particular thought of expressionism over time became one of those types of the German expressionism. And you have um, some of the influence by Freud and by the arts of Africa and Oceania. Two modernistic groups emerged in Dresden called the Bruch, which is the bridge, founded in 1905. And the second established in Munich in 1911 called itself Der Blauliter, which is the Blue Rider. From the metaphysical art and fantasy, we have um, one of the artists by the name of Giorgio de Chirico, who lived between 1888 and 1978. He was born in Greece, and then he moved to Italy. He has these um, ideas that he rejected about Italian futurism from our previous chapter, chapter 32. He pioneered a style that he called metaphysical, that is beyond physical reality. So he has these sharp, delineated images, contradictory perspectives, and unnatural colors, which are also illogically cast shadows, producing disturbing, dreamlike effects, similar to those in Kafka's prose writing. You have um, an example of his work to the right on page 399 called The Nostalgia of the Infinite, which was uh, published in 1914 dated on painting 1911. If we turn the page on page 390, again, if you're at the seventh edition, you have the Dada movement, <clears throat> excuse me. And this is a, um, a way of basically the conscious of how fraud Freudianism was considered um, 
The data movement consisted loosely of a loosely knit group of European painters and poets who perceived by perceiving World War I as evidence of a world gone mad, dedicated themselves to spreading the gospel of irrationality. You have um, that term Dada meaning hobby horse. It's a nonsensical name of the movement. Um, you have one of the early um, works. There's an example of on page right to the to the right of that writing, page 390, Marcel Duchamp Fountain, which is a urinal, um, published in 1917. Um, you would think about um, how um, you know Duchamp was looking at that combination of Cubism and Futurism, but he has this you know outweigh outright idea of thinking that something is really um, absurd or just you know irrational. You know, when you see this urinal, you, you don't really think it as a fountain, but in some cases it can be a fountain. It's just your perspective of things. I would like to point out uh, at the last person of slide four, I didn't mention earlier that, that the um, artist Marc Chagall um, was from Russia and he arrived in Paris in 1910. He had um, infused his first compositions with the folk tales and customs of his native land. And one of the pieces that um, he's known for is called I and the Village. And it happens to be um, 33.5, if you see it on page 390, I and the village. If we move over to the next slide, which is slide five, you have this idea of the impact of the new psychology on the arts that deals with, excuse me, um, dadism, which we talked about earlier, surrealism. Um, and surrealism has um, some of the artists of, we mentioned before, Picasso, Miro, and Klee. If you look at, um, it states here in your book on page 391, in the first Surrealist Manifesto, which was published in 1924, the French critic and spiritual godfather of Surrealism, André Breton, proclaimed the artist's liberation from reason and from the demands of a conventional society. Breton describes the Surrealist's commitment to the irration, irrational as follows. We are still living under the reign of logic, but in this day and age, logical methods are applicable only to solving problems of secondary interest. The absolute rationalism that is still in vogue allows us to allows us to consider only facts relating directly to our experience. Experience is protected by the sentinels of common sense. Under the pretense of civilization and progress, we have managed to banish from the mind everything that may rightly or wrongly be termed superstition or fantasy, forbidden as any kind of tr search for truth which is not in conformance with accepted practices. And it continues on with that. I would like to point out that um, Britain recognized Picasso as one of the pioneers of surrealist art. As early as 1907 in Les Demoiselles d'Ambignon, which was of the previous chapter of chapter 32, Picasso had begun to radically or radic radicalize the image of the human figure. And by the mid 1920s, brutal dissection of, and savage distortion dominated his art. You have the example of the piece called Seated Woman, which is the figure 33.8 to the left. 
There is a piece, uh, another person uh, from Sweden by the name of Paul Glee. And he was somewhat in the, still in the area deal with surrealism. There is a, a work of his called Fish Magic, which is a publication 1925 on the right, the next page, page 393. And Fish, Pat, Fish Magic painted during his tenure as a teacher at the Blue House, which we talked about in the previous chapter. Um, Key was among the first artists to recognize the art of the untutored and the mentally ill. And he quotes, only children, madmen and savages, unquote. He wrote, truly understand the in-between world of spiritual truth, which is the same passage that I talked about at the beginning of this chapter. Continuing with the new psychology and the arts, you have the artists by the name of Magritte and Dali. Magritte was a, uh, Rene Magritte and Salvador Dali was considered one of the visionary surrealists. And you have um, a piece of Magritte's work called The Betrayal of Images, um, figure 33.10. Magritte stated, uh, or Magritte brought mystery to the objects of everyday experience. He says, I don't paint visions. I describe objects. That's part of his writing. And if you notice on page 394, there's a famous piece by, from Salvador Dali called The Persistence of Memory. And this is published in 1931. It's an oil on canvas. Um, Salvador Dali was as much a showman as an artist, so he exhibited a perverse desire to shock his audiences. He drew on the models or the motifs from his own erotic dreams and fantasies. He executed both natural and unnatural images with meticulous precision, combining them in unusual settings or giving them grotesque attributes. As you see, you know, one of the examples in that particular piece of this time, it could be a dead horse, it could be a dead um, other type of mammal or the, the imagery that's listed towards the middle part of that particular piece. One of the women that was regarded as probably the most prolific in her artwork of surrealism was Frida Kahlo. She was from Mexico and um, she had um, very tragic uh, life from her childhood to her death. There is a um, a movie that was made on her behalf and one of the main characters, of course the character of Frida, was portrayed by Salma Hayek and um, the other main character or one of the other main actors in it was Antonio Banderas. So I think that was done in about uh, 2002. Again, just briefly, Miss um, Miss um, Callow um, was a a Mexican artist who um, 
was heavily influenced with the surrealistic type of style. The majority of her work or near the end of her life dealt with a lot of self-portraits. You have an example of her work on page 395, figure 33.13, entitled The Broken Column, which is a 1944 publication. If we look briefly at the Dado and Surrealistic Photography on page 396, you have the folks who are mentioned here, um, Raoul Haussmann called a, um, basically a new kind of collage called photomontage. And um, basically he implied that photomontage destroyed the role of photography as a medium for creating physical reality. But the statement also suggests that by its, de by its dependence on fragmentation and dislocation, photomontage offered quote, a visually and conceptually new image of the chaos of an age of war and revolution, end quote. The person, uh, the female member of that type of um, work was Hannah Hawk. She was schooled in the visual arts and advertising. She early trained in Berlin and um, the preparation of your textbook talks about her preparing and advertising brochures directed at a female audience, opened her eyes to a way in which mass media targeted women. As we move on to the uh, next type of our last slide, slide six, we have the new psychology and music. Again, we're still dealing with the emphasis of Sigmund Freud's work um, as a psychologist, but in regards to music, you have this idea of Eric Satie who incorporated into the music. He was a French comp composer. He he was a group of art. He was one of a group of artists, and he wrote um, titles such as "Flabby Preludes," "Desiccated Embryos," and three pieces in the form of a pair. Let me just go back for a moment. Anna Hawk, excuse me, Hannah Hawk. Um, there's an example of her work on page 397, figure 33.16. So if we quickly go over to, um, regarding the operas that your PowerPoint talks about, Strauss, Bartok, Schoenberg, and Berg, and the song cycles of melodramas, which Schoenberg um, emphasized, you have, again, this Freudian impact on music um, was not was most evident in the medium of musical drama by which, by the second decade of the century, incorporated themes of sexuality, eroticism, female hysteria, and the life of dreams. There is um, an example of um, the work um, of Schoenberg. I'm just trying to quickly go through this. Schoenberg's um, had song cycles which were called monodramas where a dramatic piece is written for a single or usually deeply disturbed character. In the monodrama, Iwaktang, which means expectation, Schoenberg took as his subject a woman's frenzied search for the lover who has deserted her. And if we look down at the uh, next section of this page, page 397, you have this um, idea of the style called Sprichstami or Sprichstami which means a speech song. Many of the critics found uh, one of the works that Schoenberg had did, which was called Pierre Lunaire, which was Moonstruck, um, Pierre, that it was depraved and ugly. 
if we look quickly at um, the last person of this chapter, Alban Burke, he was one of Schoenberg's students and um, he looked thematically at charge motifs of sexual frustration, murder, and suicide in his works of the operas called Wozzeck in 1921 and Lulu in 1935. The unfinished Lulu is the story of a sexually dominated woman who both destroys and is destroyed by her lovers. It has been called, quote, sordid, psychotic, and shocking, end quote. Again, looking back at chapter 33 from the Freudian Revolution, you have the heading of Freud, Sigmund Freud's theories concerning the nature of the human psyche, the significance of dreams, and the dominating role of human sexuality had a revolutionary effect on modern society and on the arts. As events of the two world wars would confirm Freud's pessimistic analysis of human nature, so the arts of the 20th century acknowledged his view that human reason was not the keeper of the castle. The castle itself was perilously vulnerable to the dark forces of the human mind. If we looked at the heading, the new psychology and literature, you have the writers, the artists, Proust, Kafka, and Joyce are representative of the modern novelist's preoccupation with the unconscious mind and with the role of memory and dreams in shaping reality. There's also the stream of consciousness, which is a narrative and the interior monologue are among the modernist literary techniques used to develop plot and character. American playwrights responded to the stream of consciousness technique, even as modern theater and film investigated a new performance style based on method acting. The poetry of E.E. E. Cummings reveals the influence of free association in liberating words from the bounds of syntax and conventional transcription. The new psychology and the visual arts dealt with the impact of Freud's work generating styles that gave free play to fantasy and dreams. The expressionism of Milk and Kirchner, the metaphysical art of the Chirico, and the whimsical fantasies of Chacal. We have Marcel Duchamp, the most outrageous of the data artists, championed analistic, anti-bourgeois or bourgeois, anti-art spirit that had far-reaching effects in the second half of the, of the century. In 1924, André Breton launched Surrealism, an international movement to liberate the life of the mind from the bonds of reason. Strongly influenced by Freud, the Surrealists viewed the unconscious realm as a battleground of conflicting forces dominated by the instincts. There's also Picasso, Miro, and Klee explore the terrain of the interior life in abstract paintings filled with both playful and ominous images, while Dali and Magritte question illusion itself by way of realistically detailed yet irrationally just opposed objects. Kahlo, O'Keefe, Oppenheim, and Hoch were among the female surrealists who manipulated the stuff of the real world so as to evoke jolting dreamlike effects and disquieting personal truths. Both photography and film responded enthusiastically to the disjunctive and absurd qualities of the surrealist style. And lastly, within the new psychology and music, in music, Eric Satie made use of mundane sounds with the same enthusiasm that E.E. E. Cummings brought to slang and Duchamp exercised for, quote, found objects, end quote. Freud's impact was most powerfully realized in the expressionistic melodramas of Schoenberg and the sexually charged operas of Strauss, Bartok, and Berg. Thank you for listening. <laughs>